This is basic core beliefs. It's an article of faith. And it used to be that the other side was just wrong or misguided. Now the other side is evil. Yeah. Um, and I wish I knew how we got the genie back in the bottle. Welcome to Canusa Street, a podcast at the intersection of the issues and policies between Canada and the United States. Here are your hosts, Scotty Greenwood and Chris Sands. Welcome back to Canusa Street, everybody. I'm Scotty Greenwood with the Canadian American Business Council, and I'm here with my dear friend, a great scholar, Chris Sands of the Woodrow Wilson Center. Hey, Chris. Hi, Scotty. Nice to be back on Canusa Street with it's you. It's nice to be back with you, and we, you know, it's like New York, New York. We had a guest we liked so much, we named it twice. Have a, what's this one? Sue <laughs> Lagon, a constitutional scholar, a professor, uh, for many years with Georgetown, and has been giving us a little bit of a seminar on constitutional law. So, so we wanted to have you back, but I, I guess we should have Chris introduce you properly, and then we'll, I'm so eager, I almost jumped ready to talk. No, I'm I'm glad you did. And and for those of you who are listening to this episode first, go back and listen to the other one, and you'll hear me say <laughs> right. almost exactly what I'm about to say now, which is <laughs> oh, that that's doc- not an incentive. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well I'll have a twist in this one. There'll be a test later. Um, Dr. Susan Sullivan Lagan uh, is non-resident senior fellow at Georgetown's Government Affairs Institute, and she took the position on in 2015 after 21 years as a senior fellow in the institute, um, and. She taught American politics and constitutional law in the government department at Georgetown and continues to teach there as an adjunct. So um, you were explaining in the in our previous conversation the distinction between the Government Affairs Institute and the Department of Government at Georgetown. Can you talk a little bit about like who you're teaching in those two roles? Sure. Um, the government department is undergraduate students, uh, and that was a great gig, um, and I, I loved it, and um, it became clear to me that uh, there were a lot of Americans working for the federal government who really had no idea about how it operated. Um, So I took a job with a little institute that uh, runs courses on Capitol Hill for executive branch personnel from all different agencies all around Mm -hmm. the country, um, explaining or trying to explain how Congress works. And of course, that became the oxymoron. People would say, oh, so Congress works. (laughs) Um, but, you know, the, the good old days maybe were never that good, but they were a lot better than they are now, certainly. When I was well, that. Absolutely. Yeah. Chris, the other big constitutional scholar that everybody knows about who taught con law is uh, former President Barack Obama. So, um, Sue, are you running for president? <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to state unequivocally that I am not running for president. <laughs> That's the wrong answer. <laughs> well, um, maybe you should. And here's here's why. Um there was a uh, an editorial in the Washington Post a couple of weeks ago by Mark Fisher, a senior editor there, and and the headline was "Is Civil War Inevitable?" And you know, a few years ago that would have seemed dramatic. That might have been something that a fringe professor somewhere on the left coast maybe would have thought. But now, I mean, people are talking about how divided we are as a society, and, and we all experience it. We experience it in our own families, in our daily lives, the kind of battle between, just to use a phrase that's, two phrases that are no good, sort of the political correctness versus the anti-woke, you know, like there's lots of battle lines, but, um, so let's just, let's just dig into that. So is civil war, like, let's talk about institutions and the constitution, like, can we withstand this or, 
you know, we started, our countries, as we talked about before, started with a rebellion and a war. And then we fought another big war. Um, so the Revolutionary War first, uh, breaking away from Britain, and then, and then the, the, the wall of northern aggression, um, <laughs> as they say. <laughs> well, I thought you were talking about the, the War of 1812. Yeah, that, I do that, believe that, we started that one. The Canadians didn't attack us. So I just <laughs> talk about but northern aggression. It yes. was kind of our fault because we torched York, so it was payback. Right. Well, Terrible. and you know, it's funny when Canadians talk about winning the War of 1812 because <laughs> our, our good friend, Chris and my good friend, the former U.S. Ambassador, David Jacobson, people used to say that, you know, we won the War of 1812, and he would say... Okay, I'll give you that. Do you want a rematch? <laughs> and that gets into a whole topic on Canadian defense spending. And that's another episode. Actually, idea, Chris, mm -hmm. let's do something on defense spending. We've done things on Ukraine. And anyway, oh, I absolutely. Digress. Good I'm idea. to buy you time, my friend. <laughs> uh, is civil war inevitable? You know, there's not enough time in the world for me to come up with a, 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 a really solid answer to that question. It's an excellent question. Is it a crazy one. question, though? I mean, it's not. And okay. that's the scary thing. Right. Um, you know, we now have um, at least a potential, if not likely, candidate for president in 2024 actively courting organizations that are um, out there like QAnon uh, or Oath Keepers, which Canada has identified as a, a terrorist organization now. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's just part of the base for well, Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. So. Yes, I think the divisions are um, frightening. Never in my lifetime have I felt this way before, that uh, things are as scary as they are. I do like to think there are some guardrails, and I'm kind of glad this um, podcast is taking place now because just this past week, uh, the courts have done a couple things that they should do. I'm speaking now about the um, pretty inside in the weeds baseball, but the American audience certainly has been paying attention to the fact that the former president has taken documents that he was not authorized to have in the first place to his home in Florida at Mar-a-Lago, prompting the Justice Department to find them. Many of these are classified documents. If any of us did it, we they would be in jail. They had to scrape the ketchup off and get the French fries <laughs> out of the way. But yeah, they, they found them. <laughs> scrape the ketchup off the walls. Yeah. Finding the um, finding those documents, though, this has been a big issue. We had a, a Trump-appointed judge, a district court, lower court judge, say a special master was necessary, and pretty much anyone uh, who paid attention to uh, the law, was stunned by this decision. And just this week, our Circuit Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit, a fairly conservative uh, Court of Appeals, had three judges uh, unanimously say, no, this is just wrong. Um, and that made me happy because it was a good day for the rule of law. And well, we haven't seen too many good days for the rule of law. So to me, it is the courts, ultimately, um, that are responsible for safeguarding uh, some of the protections we have against civil war. Let me, that's interesting. Let me, let me ask you this, because um, we're sitting here in, in Washington, D.C. We're on Pennsylvania Avenue. We're not at the Woodrow Wilson Center, which is right on Pennsylvania Avenue. We're not far at all away um, from where all of that unrest, um, insurrection activity occurred on January 6th, um, a couple of years ago. And 
where were you that day and what was going through your mind? And you too, Chris, what was, I'd just like to know, because again, we're talking about our democracy here and, and usually those days and January 6th was the day that the Congress was going to certify the results of the last presidential election. And usually that's kind of pompous circumstance. It's pro forma. It's not really a news day. And now I feel like, where were you on January 26th? Uh, January 6th is kind of like, where were you on 9-11? Yeah, yeah. So to talk to us about what was going through your mind as you, I assume you were watching it on TV. I sure was. I have friends that were in the building. Yeah. And maybe we can bring them on the show sometime, Chris, because it, it's, it's interesting. But yeah. Um, no, I was at home watching on TV um, because I am now that government geek who watches that sort of thing. It is normally a ceremonial occasion and... Um, it's never been anything particularly remarkable before. Um, and I will admit, I wept. I was yeah. in tears over seeing what was going on at a building I have very strong feelings for, having taught there for years and years. Mm -hmm. Arguably the symbol of democracy in many ways. Um, and Chris, I, does everyone know what we're talking about? This is when protesters were crashing into the Capitol. I think people know, but just in case, yeah. yeah. The only time since the War of 1812 that the Capitol was breached by presumably a hostile yeah. Uh, yeah. group of people. But but it's weird because you were asking what I was thinking. I, I remember when uh, Trump was first elected, uh, there were there were protests. They were people were smashing Starbucks windows, and we'd seen that at World Bank and other protests. There was the Occupy movement, Occupy Washington, and we'd seen an escalation where usually it was the inauguration, not the count, where citizens would come, but very destructively, just kind of smashing things. People said, "Okay, stay away from this area. You'd have to send out the riot police and all of that." And I guess you know I, my initial reaction was, "Well, a this is mostly ceremonial. Seems very strange," and and b you know, they're rioting again. Can we not have the peaceful transition of power where, and I, I, I guess I want to bring this back to something that we were talking about earlier, which is this sense that the institutions aren't working. And I sometimes feel that the constitution is so hard to amend. Other countries change the constitution because that's the top law, but you go all the way down. Okay. If I can't get the constitution, I'll get a statute. If I can't get a statute, I'll get a treaty. working all the way down to executive orders. People can't get what they want out of the system. And they're saying, well, then I'm going to burn it all down or I'm going to I'm going to go outside the system to take out my grievances or to try to insist on something on my own. How can I buy weapons and stock up on ammunition? Yeah. These are. Yeah. I mean, what, what's happening with yeah. with this sense that there are institutions we have together, uh, the public thing, the republic, if we can keep it, as as mm -hmm. uh, Benjamin Franklin famously said, like what happens when you have declining respect for the institutions that are meant to mediate our various disagreements and, and differences. You know, I think there are a couple of things that um, we can lay at the foot of former President Trump, but there have been some divisions that predated Trump, certainly. The ones we can lay right at his feet, I think, are uh, immediately criticizing the courts until you load them up with your folks um, and taking on the free press. Um, yes. to bulwarks uh, <laughs> that we've always counted on in the past. Um, but as far as the other institutions go and, and sort of losing faith, um, you know, my thinking was the system would work if the people in place would do what they're supposed to do. So if you have a president who clearly uh, is doing something um, 
nowhere. Um, yeah, that's the word I'm looking for. <laughs> Uh, yeah, if you have a president who's doing something treasonous, um, you impeach him. And this is when I say we've become so tribal. The fact that you are so afraid of losing his supporters when you stand for your own reelection that you are willing to countenance outrageous behavior mm. like that um, means that the people in those institutions are not doing what they should be doing. And the same thing with the president. If there is a threat, it is up to the president to get the National Guard, not to sit and, you know, watch TV. And um, But I want, I want to take this to another, because I know a lot of our listeners are Canadian and they've been watching all of this and scratching their heads and saying, what happened? Right. You were talking about Congress before and the amount of discipline that goes into, you know, these very tightly uh, divided Congresses and the role of the courts and so on. I, I feel as though there are parts of our system where the people in the institutions still do play by the rules. They may try to push them to the limits, right? But we still pass budgets. And as frustrating as it is when you can't get what you want in the bill, people come back the next day and they keep fighting. I, I see Congress, you know, working within the rules. I, I see a lot of civil servants Absolutely. working hard and feeling sometimes they can't do what they want to do, but they are working in the rules. And then I see the the courts and yeah, we have some clunker decisions and we have some of those things, but they're all argued in terms of the law and can then be reviewed by other judges. So, so I guess I'm trying to find a ray of hope. I'm a pathetic optimist here that yes, we've had some breakdowns, but, but there are some parts of the institutions that still work when we let them. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I would still, put my money on the system surviving. Really? Um, yeah, I would. Um, again, you know, we, we've seen difficult times in our past, certainly, um, and have managed to endure. As far as the constitutional change part, I think that's hard. And the only thing that would worry me more than opening Canada's constitution would be the U.S. having a constitutional convention because many of the freedoms we take for granted, I think, would be written out of there. Um, if we left it to some um, segments of the population. But uh, I think you're absolutely right about, um, the, you know, the machinery of government. Um, you know, some may call it the deep state. I prefer to think of it as the professional cadre of people who keep the system going. Um, and certainly members of Congress. I mean, I, you know, I've, I have had the pleasure of knowing lots and lots of members of Congress most of them, I would say, are there trying to do uh, what they see as best for their constituents. Um, you know, I, um, I... People don't believe that, though, Sue. You know, I mean, yeah. the distrust. We're, three of us are in Washington, D.C., and everybody in D.C. is either a member of Congress or, or works somehow in the system, it feels like, you know, in some way. But it, in the rest of the country, um, people don't think that they think we're all crooked, you know, that money buys everything, that our intentions are wrong, they can't trust the media. You, you know, I, I don't know. I, I worry that the, the level of distrust um, and, and the fact that people are getting their information now from their own self, you know, the algorithms that serve right. them up something they agree with already what? that doesn't have to have the benefit of being fact-tracked or true. Like, I'm really worried about that. that. That, in fact, I think you've hit the nail on the head in, in many ways. There is a lot that is going right. There are still a lot of things that Congress and the executive branch 
are doing as they should. You don't hear about them because they don't make for good cable TV programming. They don't they don't feature people screaming at each other, um, you know. And so you don't get the eyeballs for that sort of thing. It, you know, nobody pays attention it, for, uh, when the plane lands as it's supposed to. It's the plane crash that gets all the attention. So right. there's still a lot of planes that are landing perfectly well. Um, and I think that's something that's easy to lose sight of. It's also important to um, realize that our focus by definition, because of where we are, is on the national government. But, you know, there there are still plenty of institutions at the state and local level that are functioning well. There are some I'm pretty nervous about, and that gets us back to the whole topic of democracy. Um, in addition to being worried about people not accepting the results of an election, if you undermine the system so much by saying even before an election that it was rigged, mm-hmm. um, yeah. I, I think, you know, t- to us it's patently absurd to say something like that. Um, but I'm afraid that that's certainly had an impact, that if you lose, it can't be a legitimate election. And the fact that we're seeing in different states now um, some electoral regulations put in place that are basically disenfranchising people or allowing people to change votes after they're cast um, is very worrisome. I mean, this is the sort of thing the United States used to send poll watchers to other countries for. Well, yeah. I mean, just think about think about Russia's you know, so-called election in Ukraine, where they're sending soldiers Mm -hmm. to your door Mm -hmm. to force you to vote in Ukrainian, to vote for Russian annexation. I mean, it seems to me that's not legitimate. And what we do in our system is ultimately very patriotic and legitimate for people to say that it's not like wake up and look at the rest of the world. That's what I, you know, I don't know. So, I don't mean to be part of it. So purpose, yeah, but, you know, I, I think we spend a, a lot of time thinking about voting and electoral systems when we talk about democracy. And uh, actually it was Canada's ambassador to the UN who said something wonderful the other day, so much so I wrote it down. This is Bob Ray, Ray, who we know well, yes. Who said democracy is really about building support for the dignity of the individual, as well as the solidarity that's required and the institutional strength required to allow us to recognize the quality of our own democracy. And he said, we've got to get over the idea that it's just elections and voting that yeah. define democracy. Uh, it, it, it's an interesting thing because I, well, listening to Scotty talking about and to you talking also about the, um, the, the the way that news and social media spread all sorts of you know wild theories, I, I think a lot about um, something that Francis Fukuyama wrote. Now this goes back. It's not his most famous book, which is The End of History, but uh, a more recent one, where, which was just called Trust. And he focused on the on the importance of trust in democracy, in trusting that somebody else will follow the rules, trusting that what you're told is real and it's accurate, uh, that the person that you're voting for is who they say they are. And of course, we all have our skeletons in the closet and so on. But I, I wonder, I wonder how we can restore trust not only in the institutions but in one another. And to pick up on what you, you were just quoting Bob Ray, how do we get back to respecting each other's dignity? I, f- I feel like you and I are sitting here and with Scotty, we're seeing each other face to face. Definitely, we can respect each other's dignity. It's very hard face to face not to, right? But we, we, 
we live with all these media intervening between us and the people we're talking about. And, and many people will never meet their congressman or their senator or, or any of these people. So how do we build trust in a, in a society that is so diverse, um, so pluralistic and, and geographically, as we were talking about the states, it's just so um, large. Yeah, this is the escape hatch I always have when I'm speaking, uh, particularly with Canadian audiences, by mm -hmm. saying, okay, well, the population of California is larger than the population of Canada. You know, you're dealing with 330 million people uh, and some really significant political divides. Um, I think part of it uh, actually gets to what Scotty mentioned earlier, and I agree with her, you hate to use the terms, but they are so apt to talk about political correctness and wokeness yeah. and the kind of caricatures or cartoons that are so easy to draw uh, about um, different groups, um, you know, the sort of guns and God crowd mm -hmm. versus... Um, you know, the... Um, Hairy-legged tree-huggers. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if we're going to use the stereotypes, yeah. she's that's, always got it. She's oh, she's got, got it, it, yeah. yeah. That's, that's Chris's people versus my people. But <laughs> that's not anything, Finger but. on the pulse. Finger on yes. the pulse. And, um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's there used to be a lot of uh, respect um, for differing points of view. These are not differing points of view now. This is uh, basic core beliefs. It's an article of faith. And it used to be that the other side was just wrong or misguided. Now the other side is evil. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I wish I knew how we got the genie back in the bottle. We're going to have to figure that out. We are going to have to figure it out. And, and I know we're, we're running short on time. I just wanted to say, I think one of the things we'll have to come back to here on Canusa Street is that some of these things, some of these habits, some of this disrespect for institutions, etc., you can see it spilling over the border. Canada has enough of our system. They're starting to take some of our, our bad habits. And so this is a conversation we have to have as Americans about our Canada system. It has its own bad habits. I'm not sure it's coming from us. All right. All right. Well, you know, either way. One of the things, um, as we wrap up, I'll just say is we had a we had our first anniversary of this podcast and we brought back our first guest, Richard Madden. And he said, we said, Richard, what do you want us to focus on? He said, I think it'd be really good to have an explainer on the differences between the Canadian system and the U.S. system and what's happening to the U.S. Constitution. So you've done that for us, and I want to say thank you because, uh, you know, we, we, try to, we try to listen to suggestions um, from anyone. So if anyone's listening to us now and you want us to talk about something or have a guest, uh, hit us up. We'll listen, right, Chris? And if you didn't enjoy this discussion, blame Richard. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. Thank you so much, Sue. My pleasure. Are you red, white, and blue, or just red and white? Beaver or bald eagle? Ryan Reynolds or JLo? Canusa Street, a masterclass in cross-border relations. This is where Canada and the United States intersect on the policies and issues of our two great nations. But you know that already, that's why you're here. The question is, if you want more of this bilateral bonanza delivered directly to your inbox, and you know you do. How about signing up for Scotty Greenwood's weekly email updates on Canada-U.S. relations? Head to cabc.co to sign up today. And now back to Canusa Street. Well, Chris, as depressing as it is to talk about the potential end of democracy as we know it in the United States of America, of, of all places, um, 
It's not depressing to talk to Sue. She's so smart. She's so thoughtful. And uh, it was great to have her back. I thought it was great as well. And, you know, this has been a tough year for democracy uh, worldwide, maybe a tough couple of years. From, as we were talking, the the January 6th uh, instance here at counting the votes, um, we've seen freedom truckers in Canada. We've seen people talk, uh, Pierre Poiliev talk about getting rid of the governor of the Bank of Canada. You know, like people have taken the sort of populist moment uh, to some real strong extremes and made it seem as though our systems are just fundamentally not working. As you said in one of your questions, maybe we're on the brink of civil war. And listening to her talk about how there is still a lot that's working, uh, it just isn't necessarily winning our trust and confidence, me- means there may be a way back. And uh, sometimes you have to have a conversation with something, something like uh, someone who is as expert as Susan to really realize that all is not lost uh, and maybe yeah. there's hope. Maybe, yeah, maybe there is. And, you know, it's funny, you and Sue and I have something in common. We have lots of things in common. But one of the things is over the years, over the last, I don't know, 20 years or so, um, on and off, we'll talk to the Canada School of Public Service, which is, you know, kind of professional development for senior civil servants. Uh, and so they come to Washington. And, and again, the three of us have been involved with them on and off over the years. And one of the things, uh, I don't know if you remember this, but we got asked a few years ago during the Trump years was by a Canadian civil servant, if Trump loses the election, do you think he'll leave? Or do you think he'll, you know, kind of, they'll have to drag him out or something <laughs> in the White House? And so they asked that question. And I remember I it. Yeah, I don't remember your reaction, but my reaction was, oh. Yeah, of I think course, we both react the same way. Of like, course, of course he'll it leave. will. Like, right, like it is, has for all the other presidents. This is the hallmark of American democracy, the peaceful transition of power. And that is now called into question. I mean, mm-hmm. and that's a dramatic thing to say. I don't I'm not trying to over dramatize it uh, or dramatize it for Canadian listeners. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, that's a big deal. And, and Sue's, you know, point of view, I think, is that the guardrails are being stretched and bumped, but they're there and uh, we haven't gone off the cliff yet. Well, and, and as we closed with her, uh, just just some of some of our bad habits do have imitators in Canada. Um, and I think as much as this episode will help uh, think through what's going on in the U.S., I think we might do a future episode on how Canada's doing. And, and you know, some of these same issues are there in a different form, obviously, and maybe hopefully with less peril, but uh, but we're all going through a tough time, so it's important to talk about it. Yeah, that's right. It is important. And just one last thing for our listeners, in case in case you don't know this, because it's hard to see when uh, you're in a audio audio medium and not visual. <laughs> um, but we debuted our brand new Canusa Street swag, and Sue was the first person to receive it, and it is a lovely insulated cup with our logo on it so um maybe maybe someday people get get a chance to to well, we win, have, win a canusa street we have not I, set I, up I, a canusa street store on canusa street it's not a commercial district however uh <laughs> any we're not are, zoned we don't have zoning yet don't have zoning but if any of you are out there and you're thinking you know it sounds like so much fun on canusa street maybe i should pay a visit if we ask you to be a guest or if you think you are, could be a guest be swagging it for you there might well. be swagging it for you that's right well always great to see you my friend always great to see you and uh till the next time here on canusa street all right this podcast is brought to you by the canadian american business council and the wilson center if you like this episode 
help others find our show and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify.